We are continuing in our study of the book of Revelation this morning in chapter 4. I am thankful that uh, my initial desire was to preach the whole chapter at once, that I am thankful that um, the Lord convinced me to do it in three <laughs> instead. Uh, so this morning we are uh, going to um, look at Revelation 4, uh, beginning verse 6. Let us uh, pray. You, Lord, hold our lives. You have united us to yourself through Jesus Christ. We ask that you take our earthly lives and use each moment to bring honor and praise and glory to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 4, we're going to begin in the second half of verse 6. Uh, first off, we will pray once again for the illumination of the word by the Spirit, and then we'll read the passage for examination, and then we'll dissect the passage in its parts to make an application of the whole. Gracious Father in heaven, we desire that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the ability to see you as you are and to live in that reality in our lives. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves as we really are. We ask that you would take our lives and make us willing and eager to be your instruments, to do your will on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. And in the center and around the throne... Four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had the face of that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. This is God's word. Y'all may be seated. When God is revealed in heaven, there's a response. Worship. As it is in heaven, God is revealed to us in the preaching of his word. And the response is worship. One of the reasons why we have a liturgy where the word of God speaks and then we sing is just that very purpose. When God is revealed to us in the scriptures, the response is worship. That is the response of the redeemed. If the pastor is praised for an eloquent sermon, he's either failed to unfold the point of the passage well, or you failed to hear it saying that if you praise the one who preaches rather than praising the one to whom he preaches about, 
If your response is to praise, you know, the celebrity pastors that, that, that are out there these days and say, uh, you know, it's a great teaching. Sure. It very may well be. But if they are elevated and the worship of God is not the response, he either didn't unfold it very well or you failed to hear what he was actually speaking. A faithful church will be a display of a picture of heaven. If she worships here on earth as it is in heaven. Do you ever think about our gathering on Sunday morning that this is, a, this is to be a picture of heaven? This is to be a, a picture of what is going on in heaven. And when those who are unconverted believers, they come and they visit us, they ought to have some experience, some sense that they have, what is this? This is not of this world. This is quite different. What, what is this about? This is to be a picture of heaven when we gather. See, worship on earth must be as it is in heaven, or there are grave consequences for that. In Amos 5, 21 through 24, he says, I, God speaking says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your festive assemblies. Even though you offer me up burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatted oxen. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll out like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In the same way, Isaiah says the same thing in chapter 1, verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you offer many prayer, prayers, I will not be listening. If we desire to inhabit the praises, uh, that, that God would inhabit the praises of our church, it must be on earth as it is in heaven. And you may notice that I've titled this sermon, As It Is in Heaven. And you may notice I'll say it 60 or 70 times today. So you have to bear with that because this is, is the point that I want us to get from this passage, As It Is in Heaven. Because we are getting a picture in this chapter of how it is in heaven. And we're going to take that and say, on earth, as it is in heaven. We pray that, don't we? We, we pray that. We, we are told in the, in the Lord's Prayer, right? That kingdom come, they will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. It's the same thing with worship. Worship ought to be on earth as it is in heaven. For the last couple of weeks, we've been invited through the Apostle John, he who identifies himself as a brother of the church, a fellow partaker in tribulation, a fellow partaker in the kingdom, a fellow partaker in the perseverance that is in Christ Jesus. A door is opened to him by Jesus to look upon the throne of God in the Spirit. And we have been invited through the preaching of the Word and through the Lord Jesus Christ and by His Holy Spirit to see an open door into heaven, to see uh, what it is in heaven, what it's like. 
And through the pages of Scripture, we too have been invited into this throne room of God. We see the one who sits on the throne. We have seen his attributes displayed in heaven and how those attributes declare the gospel that we proclaim on earth. We saw that in verse 3 that he who sits on the throne is pure, uh, clear, likened to a jasper stone, uh, similar to a diamond that is brilliant in purity and absent of imperfection. We saw that he is exacting and just against sin in his attribute that is described as a sardis stone, colors of flaming orange and red that depict for us the necessary blood that is required of sinners. We saw God in his glorious display, uh, displayed in an emerald rainbow. We saw that the promise of God in the rainbow, that he would make a way for his people. We see that in the color green, that there is a promise of new life through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, what we've seen by getting entering into the throne room is if we've seen the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly displayed in the person of God who sits on the throne. And we have that message on earth as it is displayed in heaven. We see it in heaven and we carry that out on earth as we proclaim that truth about who God is. This describes the gospel displayed in heaven and it describes the nature and the character of the one true God who is enthroned in his glory. We understand from looking at this just who God is that those who believe on Christ and repent of their sins that they will be enthroned in heaven in the eternal presence of God wearing the crown of salvation that was given to them through faith in Jesus Christ. And we saw this represented in, in the 24 elders in verse uh, 4. Remember that as we looked last week at chapter 21 we got insight as to who these 24 represent. Chapter 21, uh, it had a great wall with 12 gates and the 12 gates, 12 angels, and the names were written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. See, so as we looked at this, we saw that the 24 elders that are enthroned in heaven, that are clothed in white that are given the crown of righteousness by faith that these 24 are representative of the people of God whether they were saved in the Old Testament looking forward uh, to the coming of Christ these 24 uh, represent the full number of the people of God who receive God through the same promise through one promise, and that promise is in Christ Jesus, that by faith, the elect of God will enter the presence of God for eternity. The way of salvation in the Old Testament was through faith in the promises that God said through the Messiah, He is coming. And those who believed by faith, those who believed in Jesus Christ by faith, the coming one, they inherited eternal life by faith. The way of salvation as proclaimed in the apostles' doctrine is that Jesus is that promised Messiah, that Jesus did indeed come, and that Jesus did faithfully and perfectly carry out the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. There's our example. Jesus carried out the will of God perfectly on earth as it is in heaven, even unto death, even unto death on a cross. 
The death of Jesus on a cross atoned for sin and it satisfied the wrath of God. And that through faith, a crown of righteousness is eternally granted to those who believe. And as we looked at these 24, they represent the, they represent the elect of God who were given faith to believe. One promise, and that promise is Christ Jesus. And that by faith, we will enter into the presence of God for eternity. As it is in heaven, this gospel is our announcement to the world. As it is in heaven, we find our confidence and our comfort in this evil age as it is in heaven. The 24 represented in heaven are those who have been given white robes. White robes indicate that those who have been purified through a faithfulness that has been tested through trial and tribulation. These are those of chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, who have overcome through spiritual warfare. He says, these have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will erase, I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Church, we can trust that in these evil times that we live in, the spiritual battles uh, that we go through, that God is sovereign and that he is not only guiding these trials that we suffer in, but he is using them for his good purpose to purify us through them and that we will be clothed in purity one day and we will one day be ushered into his presence. This church keeps us mindful it should keep us mindful that the world we live in, as it is in heaven, is God-centered. As we have looked, it is everything is theocentric or God-centered. In heaven, it is all centered on God. As it is in heaven, it ought to be on earth that our lives are centered, theocentric, God-centered. And now we are given a vision here in heaven uh, beyond the throne, not just the throne, not just the God, but, but the response. We're given a vision of what it looks like to respond to this holy, holy God. I will argue from this text that true worship that is in spirit and in truth, true worship is as it is in heaven. I want us to get this because this is the whole point of everything I'm going to say from this point forward. True worship, worship that is in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said his people would, is on earth as it is in heaven. True worship. Let's look at verse 6. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So we notice here that the central action around the throne of God in heaven we notice that in the center of the throne is worship. We notice that surrounding the throne is worship. Worship in heaven is natural and it flows from a right response to the attributes of God who sit on the throne. The same ones that we just discussed earlier. The natural response to the attributes of God, that God being revealed to them. The natural response before the throne, around the throne, and everywhere in the center of heaven is worship. Worship is the center of life. In heaven, when God is revealed, the response to the one in whom it was revealed is worship. So in heaven, we see the creature worshiping the creator. 
In heaven, the creature always has vision of the Creator with eyes in front and eyes behind. Always having vision of the Creator. When he walks away from the center of the throne, he has eyes in the back of his head by which he sees the throne of God. He never loses gaze on the one who is enthroned in heaven. These creatures never lose their gaze on what is most important. What is the center of life? It is God on his throne in all of his glory. You might remember things like this when you were a kid. You know, you would say that your mom had eyes in the back of her head because she could kind of see everything you did no matter what you did. You could be in a totally in another room doing the things she told you not to do and somehow she knew. I don't know how, but they would somehow, a, mo a mom just knows. I think she has eyes in the back of her head. Now these, these creatures here in heaven, they have eyes in front and they have eyes behind and they never lose sight of the one who is worthy of glory and honor and praise. They are always theocentric. They are God-centered creatures. As it is in heaven, the faithful Christian has the glory of God in their sight, in her sight, as she interacts with a difficult person in the market. A faithful Christian has the glory of God ever in front of her and ever behind her, always in her sight. As it is in heaven, the man, the one who sits on the throne is in his sight when his co-workers uh, tell off-color jokes. He has a center in his mind and his heart, the glory of God enthroned. Let us now turn our attention to the description of the creatures here who are engaged in worship. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third had the face of that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within. As we continue to move forward in our study of Revelation, it will be important for us to understand that this is a highly symbolic language. But we, would, we need to understand that this language, uh, we need to understand it in light of the language that is used in the prophets of the Old Testament. We can see these strange things that are described in Revelation can all be found in the Old Testament. All of these strange things that we see, we can find their, their grounding in the Old Testament prophets. So the creatures here described in chapter 4 are described in similar ways to the Old Testament. We'll, we'll use this morning Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel 1 and chapter 10 to help us describe these heavenly beings. Because this was in the mind of the Apostle John. Was, was Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 and Isaiah 6. As he's looking upon this, right, he's, the door is open, he's given this vision and he looks upon it and he sees it and to his mind he says, this is like what I know from the Old Testament Scriptures, right? And so he uses that as his description to the church uh, there in um, this time. So, in the Old Testament, these chapters, they're describing God on His throne. They're describing the same things that, that Revelation is, the goings-on around the throne, the angelic creatures that are uh, on the throne giving worship. Uh, the Apostle John likely has this in mind, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel. 
in uh, chapter 1 and chapter 10, he kind of has them blended together here as he's, as he's describing this in chapter 4. The creatures uh, in Isaiah, um, in Ezekiel 1 and 10 are described as having uh, four faces and four wings. Here he describes, uh, he describes them uh, as cherub in chapter 1 verse 15 in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation they are described as having six wings and they're called seraphim. So he has one description where they're described as cherubim and one where they're described as seraphim. Isaiah 6 uh, is, is a clear Old Testament picture of what's going on here in Revelation 4, 6 through 8. Let's turn to Isaiah 6 and uh, we'll begin at uh, verse 2. Seraphim were standing above him, each having six wings. With two, each covered his face, and with two, each covered his feet, and with two, each flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and atonement has been made for your sin. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying to me in verse 8, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. In our text, they are described as one having the likeness of a lion, another the likeness of a calf. I think the better reading of that calf is like an ox. Another like the face of a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. John indicates that these angelic creatures describe the best and the highest of God's creation. Max Doner writes this, Majesty like a lion, the strength of an ox, intelligence like a man, and swiftness like an eagle. The creatures who worship are representative of the best of God's creation, and they're a reflection of the attributes of the Creator. They're full of eyes. They see everything. They surround the throne to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. Just like the God on the throne who sees all, nothing escapes their notice, nothing escapes His notice. In heaven, the creature and the Creator are united. The creatures are in the center and around the throne. And so here we see that it is always to have been for God's people on earth as it is in heaven. When you think about the description of the tabernacle, the tabernacle was designed after a pattern. The pattern in heaven. The earthly tab tabernacle was a picture. It was to be on earth as it is in heaven. In Exodus 25, I was going to read a bunch of this, but I'm not going to. Um, in, Ex in Exodus 25, there's coverings for the ark. There's all of these things going on. And, and inside the tabernacle, there's engraved uh, seraphim over the ark and covering the mercy seat of God. As there were sculptures of seraphim over and around the Shekinah glory of God, 
These sculptures that were covering the mercy seat on the earthly tabernacle. That was merely a picture on earth as it is in heaven. And it was according to God's prescription. As we notice, God prescribes worship, right? God prescribes it. Not only is it our natural response to worship Him, but He prescribes the way in which we ought to. Make this tabernacle like the tabernacle in heaven. Right? That's the command. And the same thing ought to be true of our worship as we think about what is going on in heaven. What does heavenly worship look like? That's what we're getting a picture of, what heavenly worship looks like. And I I believe with all of my heart that the command then for us or the response to that is on earth as it is in heaven. That's how it ought to be. So these four living creatures, they have six wings. In in Isaiah Isaiah 6, with two of them, they are ready to take flight. That is to do the will of God. In the uh, Aramaic translation, it, it clearly states in Ezekiel 1.14 that that's what the understanding of that was to the Jewish mind, was that these were those who were swift to carry out the will of God. Right? So here, with two of them, that they're ready to fly. In Isaiah 6, 6, it says, The one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, and he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away. Atonement is made for your sin. The representative of the best of creation is ever ready to do the will of him who sits on the throne. Like the angelic creatures, those who have been cleansed and prepared and ready to do the will of the one who sits on the throne, is just like when Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then he said, Here I am, send me. You know what Isaiah is actually responding to and saying? When God calls him and asks who will go, Isaiah is saying, Just like the seraphim in heaven, so it shall be on earth. They are your instruments for your glory and your praise and to do your will. I will go. I will go and and on earth it will be as it is in heaven through me. That's what he's declaring here. As it is in heaven, true worship on earth is that which comports with and is surrendered to the perfect will of God. With two wings, they're ready to do the will of God. But notice this. With two wings, they cover their faces. Their eyes, they are full of eyes around, and they are full of eyes within. The creatures in heaven are marked by two attributes that are seen in this description of their eyes and their wings. They are zealous to do the will of God, ready to fly. And they are humble. They have eyes that see all that is going around them such that nothing escapes their purview. But they have eyes within. They understand that in themselves they are but creatures. They see themselves for who they really are. They're not self-deceived. Nor do they self-aggrandize. Their response is, holy, holy, holy. They cover their faces. They have eyes within them. That is, they know their true selves. They know the glory of God. They see it. It's ever before them. It's ever in front of them. 
They know what's going, the going-ons of the earth. They know all that's going on, right? They know the will of God on earth. They know the will of God in heaven. But they know themselves and that they are creatures. The worship of God on earth that is pleasing is worship that is according to the will of God and has a right vision of our humble estate, has a right vision of the residual sin that lives in us. When we come in to worship on a Sunday morning, we're gathered together, we have to be painfully aware of the glory of God. And we ought to also be aware of our inner selves. We have to be aware that we can put on a good face and act like we are the holiest people in the world, that we never make mistakes, and we can lie to one another when we say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Or have you struggled with this or that? Oh, no, I'm good. We're pretty good at lying to one another. But true worship is when we know, we know in our souls that we fall short, that we have residual sin that God must deal with. When we know ourselves, then we can truly worship Him, right? We can truly hear the gospel as, as, as we uh, hear the assurance of pardon every week that God gives grace to us in the gospel. We come with the right heart, a right vision of ourselves. And when we read those passages, we say, how great is our God. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. Our response then to having God's word revealed to us is worship. So, but even though, even though there are sinners, right, that there are just the creatureliness before the throne, the creature and the creator united in earthly worship when worship on earth is as it is in heaven. Now I want us to take notice of the duration of their worship, the direction of their worship, and the content of the creatures of the creature's worship. So let us look at the second half of verse 8. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Worship for these creatures is continuous. Without ceasing, the creatures are in worship. They're never too tired. They're never too busy. They're never too lazy. They're never too hurt by others. Day and night, they unceasingly worship. Their lives are worship as it is in heaven for us. Tending to our children to raise them up in the admission of the Lord, that is worship. Doing our work as unto the Lord is worship. His glory in heaven never ceases. His glory in heaven never ceases. So as it is in heaven, the worthiness which he deserves in praise on earth never ceases. God is never not worthy of praise. Never. Never not worthy, day or night. No matter our condition, no matter our state of mind, no matter the struggles that we go through, he is always worthy, day and night, of the praise of his people. He is always worthy. 
Now I'm going to apply the direction and the content of worship to the picture of heaven on earth uh, as the church gathers for the purpose of worship. Let's look at direction. When we look at direction, the creature's worship in heaven is Godward. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The direction of worship is upward. It is to the throne. There's no direction that's outwardly, right? There's no direction about them. It is the direction of the creature's worship in heaven is Godward. It's directed to the one who sits on the throne. There are no I words in praise. Did you see any I words in this passage? I think God is holy. No, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. All of their attention and direction is to the throne. That's worship in heaven. It goes right to the throne. That's the direction. There's no I words in their praise. There's no us's or no we's. I was listening to the radio, Christian radio, this week, and I was like marking in my mind song after song after song. We, us, me, my. We, us, me, my. In every, virtually every song. And then I realized that the reason why we can't really sing those songs in a church setting, although the truths that they unveiled were are, are right, they are they are truths that we have received in Christ. They are true. They are true words. But the reason why we can't sing them in church is because it's the wrong audience. I'm the audience in the car. I'm the audience of those songs. I am their intended purpose in those songs. But true worship, worship that is in spirit and in truth, is always Godward. It is always Godward. There's one direction. Heavenly worship is Godward. Worship in spirit and truth on earth is as it is in heaven, Godward. True worship is Godward. It's declarative in its content. The declaration is, who is this God? As God is revealed to them, they declare back to Him who He is. Holy, holy, holy. It's declarative. He is the Holy One. He is, they say it three times, why? He is the thrice holy God. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is triune and yet united in one. He is the Holy Father. He is the Holy Christ. He is the Holy Spirit. The declaration is holy, holy, holy. He is perfect in His holiness. He is pure. He is without sin. He is absolute and He is complete. He lacks nothing in purity. He is other than his creatures. That's another declaration of this holy, holy, holy. He is other. He is totally other. In heaven, they declare his otherness. As it is in heaven, we at churches, we are singing praises. It's about the otherness of God. He is holy, holy, holy. And I would cover my eyes because I have eyes within me to go, I am not Him. I am not holy, holy, holy. I am not pure and without perfection. But He is holy, holy, holy. He is worthy to be praised because He has brought me into His presence through the death of His Son who atoned for my sin. 
He is worthy of my praise. And His holiness informs all of the other goodnesses that He is. Right? Holiness is first. They start holy, holy, holy. And it informs all of the goodness that, uh, of who God is that will follow. And what follows, holy, 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 is He is the Lord God. He is the Lord God. They first acknowledge in heaven, holy, holy, holy. And as it is in heaven, so be it a reflection here in the church. The next thing the creatures declare are His attributes. First, they declare He is holy God. They declare that He is Lord God Almighty. The praise of heaven declares Him God. The ultimate authority. There's no one else to whom the creature can appeal. Notice this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. There's no other authority to whom the creature can appeal in heaven. They appeal to the highest authority, and that is God who sits on the throne. And they make their declaration. There's no one to whom they can appeal. No. Uh, no one is even close to His rule and His reign. And therefore, they say, He is Lord. He is their Master. The one to whom they must submit. Sometimes we get confused about, I've, I've heard this said in some churches, just make Him Lord. You can't make Him anything. He already is Lord. He is Lord. He is the Almighty. He is the ruler of heaven and earth. He is Lord. He is your Master, whether you bow your knee to Him or not. He is the Master. He is the King of the universe. He is the God of God. He is the glory of God, Jesus Christ. He is the Master. And this is the one to whom we must submit. He is Lord in His position. We don't make Him Lord. We are but servants underneath His authority. This is what the creatures are declaring. We are but servants underneath His authority. And thirdly, they declare that He is Almighty God. That there is nothing that He cannot do. He is omnipotent. He is the all-powerful God. Finally, they declare that He is eternal. He is the pre-existing one. He was and He is and He always will be. He will outlast every enemy that He has. He will outlast every enemy that we have. He will outlast every trouble that we go through. He will outlast it. It made me just in this moment think of the song, and He will hold me fast. He will outlast all of those things, all of those things and He will never once lose His grip on me. He will hold me fast through all of it. He will outlast. And because He has made me His own, I will outlast in Him. I will outlast all of my enemies. We can be confident in that, right? Because God will outlast all of His enemies, and we firmly in His grip will outlast all of ours. He will take us all the way. There's a lot of Christian songs today that declare great truths about our position in God and Christ Jesus, the joy that we have in salvation. They even sing of the longing of our hearts for a deeper intimacy and connection with God. But if the church is to be a picture of heaven, I declare this, that if worship on earth is to be as it is in heaven, it must be Godward. There is only one audience. It must be that we declare who He is. We must extol His attributes. We must declare His otherness. There's only one audience in heaven, and that is the God who is on the throne. 
As it is in heaven, it ought to be on earth. There's one audience. It is he who is in heaven. There's only one in whom the creatures aim to please, and it is God on the throne in heaven. As it is in heaven, so it ought to be in the church on earth. I know I've been in churches where they, they talk about like worship songs and I don't like this and I don't like drums and I don't like that and I don't like this and I don't like this. And then they change their, their mode of operation based on how many people like what, this, that, or the other thing. Like, well, then that's your audience. You've missed the point. You've fully missed the point. Because there's one audience and it is holy God in heaven who is worthy of our praise. There's only one. There's only one in whom we must declare His holiness, His great attributes, His otherness. God is our audience. And our songs and our prayers, even think about your prayers. Have you ever been in a prayer group where, where there's a lot of I's and me's and we's? And, and you go, okay, well, who are you praying for my benefit? Are you praying to me? Because you're kind of wanting me to go along with what you're talking about. Or are your prayers upward, declarative, declaring who God is, declaring who the scriptures tell you you are in him? Prayers are declarative, right? I was, I've been reading this, this book lately uh, by Alistair Begg called Pray Big. It's really uh, good in thinking about how when we pray, we sometimes try to be really polite, like we're talking to a human. God, we just want you to do this or that. Well, just says, God, I'm limiting what you could do for me. Just do this. Just do that. I'm just asking. It's polite. But it ought to be declarative. God, you are this. God, you can do this. God, your will is to do this. God's will for us is to be changed and transformed. God, and we declare that. Uh, I sent a text to a couple of people the other day of, of uh, Second um, Thessalonians 1.11. What a great prayer. That as we resolve to do work, that the power of Christ is working in us. That's a declarative prayer, isn't it? I pray that all that you resolve to do will be done in the power of God. Right? That's declarative. That's a, that's a, that's a prayer that God immediately can answer. Right? God, we trust that you and by your power can do all things. And I resolve for good, but I resolve to do good in your power, in your strength. There's only one uh, uh, aim of our songs, of our prayer, and it is one audience. It is God on the throne. Our declarations are His attributes. Our declarations are His authority. Our declarations are His uh, rule in our lives. Our declaration is His glory. Our declaration is His eternal nature. And now, let us look at the 24. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. See, verse 9 is kind of a reiteration of, of those points of the direction and, and the aim of, of prayer or, and of praise. Whenever 
The creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne, who, who will worship Him, who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. See, worship requires contribution. Some time ago, I went to a preaching conference, and a, there was a well-known uh, teacher there, a guy, Scottish by birth. When he entered the pulpit, he com commented on the men who had just finished singing. And he says, I have noticed that American men are mostly change jinglers in church worship. They stand around with their hands in their pockets, and they let the rest of the people worship. We should notice that in heaven, worship is participatory. We should notice in the heavenly scene that worship is participatory. The creatures worship while they are doing so. The 24, the representative of the redeemed, are moved. These creatures are worshiping, and the 24 are moved. Think about this. They're moved. They are engaged. They are moved. The creatures declare the glory, honor, and thanks to the eternal God on His throne, and the 24 then are engaged in worship. As it is in heaven, the worship of God is not for some to do while others sit by and enjoy it and watch the show. The worship of God is not for some to do while other people stay home and throw a Super Bowl party. Or it's not for some to do while others go fishing. Worship is not for some Christians to do while others decide that this day I need to sleep in. As it is in heaven, these 24 represent everyone purchased by the blood of Christ. As it is in heaven, those who have been set free from sin, those who have been given a new life, those who have been given the promise of eternity, they are to be engaged in worship day and night and particularly corporately contribute to the worship of God on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. The Christian will not be too busy doing something else while the corporate worship of God is carried out by somebody else. I declare this boldly, and I've been guilty of it, so I'm, I, I declare this boldly and con by conviction. I've been a change jingler. Gone to worship and watched other people do it. Stood around with my hands in my pocket. There are no change jinglers in heaven. There's no one standing around with their hands in their pocket waiting for somebody else to worship for them. None. As it is on earth. It ought to be as it is on earth. It ought to be as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. There are no change jinglers in heaven. While the creatures give glory, honor, and thanks, the redeemed fall on their faces in worship. They are moved to their face. As it is in heaven, the redeemed will worship the eternal God who lives forever. Notice the 24 are moved in humility. Those who have persevered through much trial, through much tribulation, those who have been given white robes through trial, those who have been purified and refined through fire, having received a crown to rule and to reign because God has counted them faithful. Notice that they cast their crowns. 
they throw them down. In heaven, the redeemed credit their faithfulness to God and not to themselves. Any good that they may have done on earth is Christ in them. Any thanks that they have received for service to others, any souls that were won for Christ for their willingness to preach the gospel, they understand this, this was Christ in me. And I lay it down before Him. Because only He is worthy of praise. It is only of Him that can be said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is only of Him that we can say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. It is you who created all things. It is because of your will that they existed and that they were created in the first place. All of our worship goes to Him. Any good thing that we have done is Christ in us. As it is in heaven, we too know that all the good that I might do of God and all that I might do of His work is just faith that God has given to me in the first place. It is the faith that God has given to me. And the sum of our life, the sum total of the human life, as we think about some of the divines who have said, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. To me, that says that the sum of human life is worship. The sum of a human life is to declare this, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and they were created. The sum of our lives is praise, on earth as it is in heaven. And as I was preparing this, I think I thought of a song after the songs had already been selected, right? And I'm, I, I'm in uh, praying and thinking, how would I close this out and what 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 does this what does this move me to it moves me to this chris tomlin song we fall down we lay our crowns at the feet of jesus the greatness of mercy and love and at the feet of jesus we cry holy 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 <laughs>